Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, June 26, 2015. This is episode 374. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio in Central City, Pennsylvania is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith at the controls. Joining me from Studio C, back in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hi, Joe. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining us on IEQ Radio. Good day, Cliff. And our guest this week is all-around nice guy and principal at Mason Grant Consulting in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Lou Harriman. Looking forward to an hour with Lou today. We're going to talk a lot of moisture. Before we get started, um, make sure you check out the new IAQ Radio website. We've got the search box. We've got the show descriptions in there. Cliff's blog is in there. Um, Our resource page has been expanded. Check it out. Let us know what you think of it. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services okay you can either stream the show or download from our website at iaqradio.com and you can also subscribe to the show on the itunes podcast section last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust that's at iaqtraining.com let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question thanks joe Hello, everybody. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. I'm sorry to report that there were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. Better luck this week. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, June 26, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. The terms grains of water is commonly used in psychrometrics. How many grains are in a pound of moisture? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. Lou Harriman, is, he's been in, he began as an architecture student back in Dartmouth, and after five years as an Air Force officer, he went to work for a manufacturer of dehumidification systems. And he got permanently hooked into the HVAC engineering world, and he's been there the last 38 years. He was the lead author and project manager for a landmark second edition of what's called the Munter's Dehumidification Handbook. He's an ASHRAE fellow, an international distinguished lecturer, and for ASHRAE, he wrote, designed, and illustrated Uh, the ASHRAE Humidity Control Design Guide, and the ASHRAE Guide for Buildings in Hot and Humid Climates. He's also serving as the chair of the ASHRAE Technical Committee on Moisture Management in Buildings. He was also on the uh, position 
document titled Limited Indoor Mold and Dampness in Buildings, Limiting Indoor Mold and Dampness. Most recently, well, before that, actually, he was uh, one of the co-authors or, or contributor to the EPA Moisture Control Guide for Building Design, Construction, and Maintenance. And the most recent book, at least I've been reading, is Measured Home Performance, a guide to practices for home energy retrofits in California. He wrote that one with Rick Chitwood. So we're happy to have Lou back for his fourth appearance here on IAQ Radio, a couple times with others. This time he's solo, and we've got some music. Nobody wants to be moist, a bunch of overactive pores. I struggle opening doors and I lose every tug of war. Nobody wants to be wet, though sweet soul I do secrete. Can't make damp fingers snap to the beam. The microphone is dripping, my baritone is slipping. A rhyme into this line I'll have to voice. Nobody wants to be moist. Oh, Lou, that's special for you. <laughs> that's really, that's fabulous music, Joe. I, <laughs> I had never heard that one. Got to give all Definitely the credit to Cliff. Theme. Definitely my theme song. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a new theme song. We'll keep that one. John, hang on to that one because we love having you, Lou. Um in addition to being a, a nice guy and, and, and a joy to be around, you're really knowledgeable, and, and it's a lot of fun to talk to you about these things. And you do it in a way that brings it to the you know the common guy like myself that may not understand everything you're talking about, but you have a way of bringing it down to our level. What are you working on nowadays, Lou? What are your most recent interesting projects you're working on now? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Joe, I, I'm not sure it's legal to be having as much fun as I'm having these days. You know, I, I got, as I as I passed the landmark year 65 last year, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is just, what about retirement? And the answer is, no, I'm not going to do that. It's too much fun. So I've got a bunch of different things that I'm working on these days for a variety of clients and, and volunteer activities. Um, I think... The one that I'm most deeply involved in at the moment is an interesting project for the Department of Defense. If you think about the massive, you know, trillions of dollars worth of military equipment that we have around the entire world, there's a problem with storing that stuff. And we're doing a lot of that these days internationally. And so the Department of Defense put together a, a research project to figure out what's been working and what hasn't been working with respect to corrosion control. And because this involves a lot of dehumidification uh, in, in several aspects of the different technologies, I, I'm privileged to be part of that effort to survey what's going on and, uh, and talk to people all over the world about the, the corrosion protection systems that have been working and the ones that haven't been and why that would be the case. <laughs> you know, so as a taxpayer, you know, we, we can be... Uh, that we can be happy about the way that the Department of Defense is spending money to preserve all that trillions of bucks worth of stuff that we own. What's the most challenging regions of the world for doing that type of, you know, for for corrosion? Well, it's it's a little surprising uh, to a lot of people to understand that that some of the most corrosive environments that we have are are not necessarily humid areas, or areas that you think of as being humid. Uh, for example, Kuwait, where we you now have an awful lot of prepositioned equipment, is extraordinarily corrosive, uh, much more so than you'd expect, and it's because it's right next to the, to the, uh, uh, to the Persian Gulf, uh, but it also has all that corrosive dust in the air, and the dust combined with the high absolute humidity Dust acts as a desiccant and pulls humidity down onto the surface of stuff, and the corrosion is just unbelievably high in, in an area that you think of as a desert. You know, while we're on, I know there's other things, but you, every time you bring up a subject, the questions come to my mind. Schools. <laughs> so we have these schools, and, and we shut them down in the summer a lot of times. And, you know, if I go down to my storage shed over the hill here, Nothing in my storage shed is getting moldy. Uh, it's, it seems fine. But in the school down the road, when they shut down their mechanical system for the summer, 
they might get mold. Is there, or you know, why is that? I'm not sure I understand. Well, I'm I'm not sure anyone understands at all, but I but I know that there's a classic problem with buildings that are seasonally occupied, and schools are just the poster child for for a problem that we see in all parts of the country, and that's intermittent cooling in a humid building. So if you, unlike your tool shed, which you, you probably don't have air conditioning, I'm betting, Joe. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, but in a school, you probably do have air conditioning that, uh, that intermittently comes on to maintain a you know, higher temperature when people aren't there. You don't you know, spend a lot of money, but you might still be intermittently cooling the school. And so if you can picture this, you've got a, a building where you have humid air in there during the summertime because, as we know, you know, humid air gets into buildings because buildings are pretty leaky. And then every now and then you hit that wall with cold air or you hit the, uh, the environment with cold air. And so now you have very high surface humidity, uh, surface RH, because you have a high dew point in the school. Uh, and you create cold surfaces from time to time. So now you got mold because okay. the the moisture is absorbed into those cool surfaces, and so that's that's what the mold is after is is damp surfaces, so it can grow. That's so one one reason it happens all over the country too. It's, it's you think that's just Houston, and Florida, but no, it's everywhere. Very hard in Pennsylvania, and bang, you got the problem too. It happens in New Jersey, it happens in Central Massachusetts, uh, happens all over. So is it too simplistic to say either don't run it at all or run it pretty consistently or, or almost always? Yeah. The problem with running it consistently or almost always is it's a tremendous waste in terms of energy because, you know, there aren't people there. Right. The, <laughs> the problem is, is, is what you really need is you need a separate system to keep things dry during the summertime. And if you do that, then, then a lot of good things happen. You know, things don't get damp. And if things don't get damp, then you don't have the bacterial population and you don't have the fungal population. Okay. But that's, again, something that most people that control schools aren't willing to fund for the very good reason that they don't have the money to do it. Good point. I'm glad I asked. All right, let's go back to the original question. What other, I mean, that was the DOD project. What other projects are you working on right now? Well, another one of my favorite things, which is kind of a blast from my past. Uh, when, I was, when I was in college, I actually taught Spanish. I, I had gotten to know Spanish pretty well, and I was a Spanish teacher, a Spanish instructor in college. And Laura Kolb, who is responsible for those wonderful EPA moisture guidance in buildings, wanted to have a Spanish edition of the EPA's moisture control guidance for building design, construction, and maintenance. And she hires a terrific uh, Spanish interpreter after looking. And it takes a little bit of looking to, have, to, to find a good Spanish interpreter for building science. But she found a fabulous one, Alberto Herrera, uh, a terrific guy who's been involved in the plumbing codes internationally. So he's very good about building technology and building science and arcane descriptions. Uh, but she kind of wanted someone else to take a look at the translation just to have another technical review in Spanish of the of the uh, EPA's guidance. So I've been having a great time with <laughs> my Spanish and doing a technical peer review in Spanish of the EPA's guidance, which is due out later this year in Spanish. The, for the obvious reason that uh, we have an awful lot of people in, that are uh, native Spanish speakers in our construction trade, so it's a good idea that without guidance it will be useful, more directly useful to them than it would be, let's say, in English. Hmm. And I know there's others. What else? Um, uh, another, another project is uh, also in connection with the EPA guidance is an e-learning course for ASHRAE. Uh, the EPA has put together, or has, has got uh, Terry Brandon and myself working on a project to make instructional materials out of the EPA guidance, and uh, uh, I'm going to be able to take some of that guidance and turn that into an e-learning course for ASHRAE, so you'll be able to go online uh, at the ASHRAE site and 
actually get uh, professional credit, professional uh, development hour credit through ASHRAE for taking a course that's based on the EPA guidance. And I'm very excited about that because these days, you know, if who has time to sit in a classroom? Not very many people. It's <laughs> we tough. All, it's all tough. have time at some point to uh, to be able to go online and take a course. And Terry's stuff, as you can imagine, Terry's slap on the EPA guidance, he's being one of the principal authors of it, is just so much fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Terry's man. a real gas to work with. And, and uh, we're going to have an awful lot of fun turning that into an e-learning course. Now, who's that intended for? ASHRAE members, or is it for building and maintenance staff, or a little of both? It's everybody. Um, one of the hopes is that uh, because ASHRAE has a, a close relationship in, the, in their educational programs with AIA, with the American Institute of Architects, the hope is that the architects will also make use of that e-learning course so that we begin to bring the architects into the world of engineering in a way that's relevant for them. Uh, always a trick. You know, they have much broader concerns than what we have in engineering, and, uh, and it's difficult to attract their attention because their world is so much more complex than ours is. Uh-huh. But given that you know, moisture and humidity problems are the single largest uh, reason for uh, for uh, claims against errors and omissions insurance of engineers and architects, we think they've got a chance of, uh, of attracting their attention that way to help them learn from other people's problems instead of from problems that they have in their own projects. You know, I know you're so also... It's aimed at architects. It's, it's also aimed at uh, building owners, of course, and, and operators. I know you're also working on another project for ASHRAE, and it's, I guess, a multidisciplinary task force, and, and you're trying to actually define what damp buildings are. I mean, we're talking about telling architects or having them learn more about this major problem that occurs in many buildings, and we still don't really have a good definition for it. Are, are we having any luck there? Yeah, we're, we're, we're struggling with it. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to do it. This is a, a program that was put together by... Um, by Bill Bonflet, who was president of ASHRAE, uh, not this year, but, but last year. And he, he being a professor, uh, as well as a consulting engineer, as well as a building forensic guy, uh, is always uh, looking at ways to make ASHRAE more helpful and relevant. So he came up with this idea of a multidisciplinary task group for stuff where no one discipline can be useful. And, and water and buildings is exactly fits into that. So we put together a multidisciplinary task group under the guidance of the Technical Activities Committee, and, uh, and I'm chairing the group. We've got a terrific group of seven people, including myself, and we're wrestling with this problem of, of uh, how to define a building that's dry enough. This really, the task comes out of the ASHRAE position document on indoor dampness and mold. And one of the big things that we came up with, uh, that the society came up with, is, look, it's all very nice to say damp buildings have negative health effects, so you shouldn't have damp buildings. But what's a damp building? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and by the way, uh, uh, how would you know if you had one? (laughs) So that's a very difficult thing to do. No one's done that before worldwide. If you look at the health literature, it's like, well, 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 well. It's damp, there are negative health effects. But the metrics for that are all over the map, and the protocol for inspecting is, is very random and, and, and not very reliable. So what we're trying to do is to gather up what's known about that uh, and to try and consolidate that information, or at least make a start on it. And the really difficult aspect of that, of course, is that we are talking about human health. So that's kind of when the engineers and the architects and all those building scientists-type crowd run for the exits quickly to stop (laughs) so that you don't get sued. It's it's a delicate process. (laughs) But I'm cautiously optimistic that we've got great people on on this task group that will be able to make a start anyway. Do you have some medical people on there? Yeah, we do. Uh, uh, We have uh, Robert Malgavez, who is a public health uh, investigator in the state of Florida, for the state of Florida. 
and he is the guy that did the original health investigations of the Martin County Courthouse in Volusia County in, 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 uh, in Florida. And that's kind of the ground zero for commercial building mold and moisture problems and health effects. Mm-hmm. That's back in the 90s. And then we also have uh, Mark Mendel, who is with the California Department of Public Health, and he has been a tremendous help because he is always looking at the literature uh, from a very careful and uh, uh, and public health aware eye. Uh, very careful guy and a guy who looks very broadly and a guy who does not make statements uh, casually. <laughs> so it's just a real pleasure to have guys like that. And we've got uh, uh, Carl Grimes as well, uh, as a well-known uh, name to people in the Indoor Quality, you know, former president of the Indoor Quality Association and vice president for practice of the International Indoor Quality Association. And we've got uh, uh, registered professional engineers uh, in the form of, of um, uh, Rick Peters out in Seattle, uh, who wrestles with us constantly and also, George DuBose from Florida, Liberty Building Consulting. He is the incoming chair of ASHRAE's Technical Committee 112, as well as a registered professional mechanical engineer for lots of years. So we've got a good group of people that are knowledgeable about investigating buildings from many different perspectives. You know, that's a fascinating topic, and it leads me to think, what is there a legal definition for a damp building? I mean, what, what do the courts depend on <laughs> i have no clue i think they depend on whatever whatever you know uh, articulate attorney can convince them is important i think is what they really count on but there is no legal definition hmm. and i doubt that there will ever be one um but uh you know maybe there will be maybe it'll be based on on the sort of things that we come up with but i sincerely hope it'll be a long time before that happens because we we have a long way to go before we can make a protocol that that is practical and uh, and repeatable uh, and affordable uh, to do, you know, for for building owners. But that's our goal: just to find something that the that, that owners can use to say, "Well, we probably are plenty dry enough here," or well, "This is probably a problem. <laughs> we should do something about it in a hurry." <laughs> you know, that's, that's amazing. We've got this whole industry built on a concept that hasn't been defined. Yeah, well, that's not new. I mean, if you consider that, that ASHRAE's uh, second meeting, so this is like 1895, right? 1894 is the first meeting of ASHRAE, uh, first time they got together. And the group got together and said, you know what we got to do is we got to figure out how much outdoor air we need to ventilate buildings. <laughs> so why don't you guys get over there and figure that out and uh, and then give us a report on that next year. So, <laughs> 1895. We're still working on that. <laughs> wow. hundred and what? 120 years so, later, we're still working on that. We we don't have a definition for, for what is a uh, you know, adequate uh, indoor, indoor environment, do we? No. No. <laughs> Interesting. Well, hey, let, let me get Cliff real quick. Cliff, did you want to jump in, ask any questions before I, I continue? Well, I think that um, are you doing anything with um, measuring home performance by any chance? Sure. Uh, that, that's a project that I was really privileged to work on a couple of years ago with uh, Rick Chitwood out in California. In, uh, in California, they have the toughest energy legislation, the, the toughest energy requirements for buildings of, of any of any uh, U.S. state. They call it California Title 24, and that comes up for renewal. That that law comes up for review and for revision every few years. And one of the people that is an advisor to the California Energy Commission is a guy named Chitwood, Richard uh, Chitwood. And he's up in Shasta, California. And he has spent almost all of his career uh, as an HVC contractor and as a home performance contractor because he figured out pretty quickly as an engineer that general HVAC doesn't work very well in homes. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. And so he made a career out of making, making houses better with respect to that. And you can't do that without affecting the building enclosure. You have to have a better building enclosure. You know, 
often have to tear out the entire HVAC system and do it right. And so he's been doing this for years, and there's a small group of people, uh, probably only more than, probably not more than 100 contractors out there in that huge state that have been doing home performance the way Rick has recommended. And, and I, I've titled that measured home performance as to distinguish it from regular home performance. And it's wonderful stuff. <laughs> you, know, you can take 40 to 70% of the HVAC energy out of a building, out of, out of a home, out of an existing home, if you follow the, uh, the, the guidance that, that, and the protocols and the, and the procedures that Rick and his, his disciples and, uh, and, and people that have taken his advice and extended it even further. Um, you know, it's just an almost magical thing. It costs some money, <laughs> but it works. Unlike lots of other public, uh, publicly funded programs that cost money and don't necessarily work. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I just a follow-up to that. Um, we had a speaker on a couple of weeks ago, guest on a couple of weeks ago, who had a pretty startling statistic about California. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the number that he threw out was something like 34% efficacy is what they were actually getting uh, in terms of energy savings uh, in California. So for every dollar they're only able to save, or for every dollar they were claiming uh, energy savings, they're only saving 34 cents. Could be. I, I suspect that has to do with one of the many programs that they've had in the state of California for energy upgrades. Uh, the most recent one, Energy Upgrade California, uh, you know, was very, uh, we'll call it heavily burdened with, uh, with requirements for lots of other people to inspect and verify and lots of paperwork and things like that. So it's a very costly program, and it's kind of the opposite of what of what uh, measured home performance is all about. It's a very different approach. With measured home performance, what you do is you put all the money into instruments, uh, and you give them to uh, people that are trained to use them. And those people are trained to use them and then do the work themselves. So they're using the tools to measure stuff while they're working <laughs> instead of having someone else come in and, you know, like the, like the, like a third party inspector, you know, right. what does a consultant do? You know, or we come on the battlefield after the battle's over and we ban it, the wounded, right? That's what we do. You know, sure enough, you screwed it up. Uh, yeah, now, now pay me for that, please. <laughs> Measured home performance is a totally different approach. You, you, you trust the people who are doing the work and you train them to do it. Uh, and that's a really great way to do it as opposed to a more uh, uh, overly documented approach. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shotgun approach, too, in many ways. And the book is Measured Home Performance, Guide to Best Practices for Home Energy Retrofits in California, and this would work anywhere. And it's it's got it's just filled with great information. If you're into that area of um, of building science, but also, you know, a lot of these a lot of these topics are also indoor air quality topics. You know, we're we're talking about sealing up buildings properly, and we're talking about duct leakage, and we're we're talking about um, Things like uh, carbon monoxide and, and making sure that we're not, you know, causing problems with carbon monoxide and doing doing testing of those things. So it's it's an excellent uh, resource for anybody in this industry. I, I really have enjoyed. I've been reading it and um, really enjoyed it. And it Great. seems like um, our people are enjoying it. Wow, we're already at halftime. That's amazing. You know what? I got to do one more question before we get to halftime, Lou, and then we're going to halftime. And then when we come back, we've got to talk about Healthy Buildings 2015, investigating and avoiding moisture problems. But um, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the EPA Moisture Control Guide. How has that been being received out there? We had you and Terry on. It's almost a year ago now, believe it or not. And um, I'm wondering how things have gone since then. Very well. Uh, it, the the EPA guide has been quite well received by the by the whole community, and uh, I don't have current numbers. But uh, uh, but uh, several months ago, I was chatting with uh, Laura Cole, who is the in the Indoor Environments Division, and and this project was developed under under her under her guidance. And, uh, 
advocacy over a lot of years, and she was telling me at that point that the that the PDF, it's a free PDF, you know, your your tax dollars at work. Uh, it was at that time the single uh, uh, most popular download from the EPA site. So we're talking hundreds of thousands of, of downloads <laughs> over the last year, which is just great news because. It's such a pleasure to have all that guidance from so many people that have that taken the time to contribute to that, that uh, it actually gets out to people who can use it and who are apparently interested in it. So, great feeling. <laughs> well, what we'll do is we're going to break, thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds. When we come back, I want to kind of take those two topics, the EPA Moisture Control Guide. I want to, I want to talk a little more detail about that but also combine that with your presentation at Healthy Buildings that's going to be about investigating and avoiding moisture problems in buildings. So we'll be back in 90 seconds with our guest, Lou Harriman. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, we're back with the second half of our show, our interview with Lou Harriman. Lou, we, we talked a little bit about the EPA Moisture Control Guide that's being well received. One of the big changes in there with the way we look at buildings is is to kind of encourage people to look at dew point as opposed to relative humidity and in the guidance they talk about maintaining a dew point limit of 55 degrees fahrenheit in our buildings but and they kind of get away from relative humidity Um, so there's a shift from rh to dew point What's the logic behind that shift, and why 55 degrees? Why not something higher or lower? Sure. Well, it's um, it's a compromise uh, between the competing requirements of humidity and moisture control and the energy and the equipment that you have to have to accomplish that. <laughs> that's, that that's why the 55-degree dew point. We'll talk about that a little bit more in detail in a minute or two, but... The, the 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 point that you brought up at the very beginning, you asked about schools and how come your tool shed, which you know is not humidity controlled, uh, is not growing mold, and the, and the school down the road does end up uh, developing mold over the summer. And the answer partly is is because people are focusing on relative humidity, and relative humidity is relative temperature. It does not tell you what the absolute humidity is, and it doesn't tell you when you're in trouble. For example, you know, that school, it's a perfect example. Uh, the school probably had a relative humidity that was in the 50s uh, or 60s or maybe 70s a little bit, but usually lower than that. But it still grew mold, and that's what happens in, in Houston, all over, all over the uh, Gulf Coast and all over Florida. If you just look at relative humidity, you're okay. But that's not what we have in these buildings. We have we have high dew points in buildings, and and then we've got intermittent cooling. 
Another example is in uh, is in seasonally occupied condominiums. So you picture a condominium in Florida, and you don't want to be cooling it in the summertime when you're not there. So you don't. But the neighbors in the in the walls that adjoin your condominium, they happen to be there in the summer, and they're running their refrigeration, they're running their cooling way down. Hmm. Well, your relative humidity in your condo uh, is very low because the temperature's high. But you grow mold on the walls that adjoin those cold rooms next to you, the, the cold uh, the, the cold condominiums next to you. So focusing on relative humidity is just not as productive as keeping track of the dew point. Dew point gives you a sense of how much water you've got in the air. And it also tells you a lot about the surface temperature where you're likely to have a problem. So if you have a dew point, let's say, of 70 degrees Fahrenheit in a space, and that would be common (laughs) in an unconditioned condo, and you have a wall surface of 67 degrees because someone else is really making things cold and there's no, there's no, there's no insulation in that wall, so your wall is a 67 or 69. You know you're in trouble. You've got a 70-degree dew point, 69 degrees. The wall surface is below the dew point in the air, and you're absorbing moisture, and you might be going to end up with mold because moisture is being absorbed into the, into the food source, into the wall. So that's fundamentally why <laughs> an awful lot of people, uh, certainly in the ASHRAE community, are trying to encourage people to think about dew points. That's one reason. <laughs> okay. Another reason, uh, another reason is because relative humidity is is not useful for uh, for calculations, and dew point is easily transferable to absolute humidity or grains per pound, the weight of the water in the air. And that is where engineers need to think about. You know, or they're not going to talk about. I'm going to have this relative humidity going into this system, or I need to have that relative humidity coming out. That's a very unproductive way to think about designing an HVAC system. Much better if you have, I got this grains growing in, I need that grains coming out in order to maintain this grains. And that's, that's helpful. Frustration people kind of know this, you know, they know they need a big grain depression. Uh, and we need to encourage uh, mechanical engineers to think about the same thing for buildings. You know, you, you spend a lot of time with restoration people when you, you made that statement that they know this. Is it, is it not that common in the mechanical engineering world, or, or, or is that changing? Well, it's the a mechanical engineer thinks about uh, cooling first, and they know that uh, dehumidification happens in cooling coils, uh, especially at design, when, the, when there's a lot of load, a lot of cooling load in a cooling coil. Uh, you're going to be doing some dehumidification along with your cooling. And so they have a way of thinking about that. They, have, they call it the sensible heat ratio of the coil, of the cooling coil, of the system. And that's um, not too bad when you're thinking about cooling. It's very unproductive when you're thinking about dehumidification. Sensible heat ratio is the amount of, uh, of, uh, uh, of sensible cooling temperature change that you that you achieve compared to the total work that you're doing the sensible heat ratio it's the ratio sensible to, to the total and the other part of the total cooling is latent heat or dehumidification so they think about a sensible heat ratio of 0.9 meaning most of the work I'm doing is is sensible 90% of it is sensible that means I'm doing 10% latent in other words I'm taking 10% uh, of my energy, and I'm putting that into dehumidification. And if I have a low sensible heat ratio, which is to say like 0.7, then it means I'm doing lots of dehumidification. But to me, that's a little bit like saying I'm going to rate light bulbs according to how much dark they don't produce. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really not the right way to think about <laughs> about dehumidification. The much more efficient way to think about it is the way restoration people think about it. They think about grain depression. How much water did I take out of the air? <laughs> right. The restoration people don't think about pounds per hour, and engineering to think about pounds per hour. But uh, but they think very productively. I'm going to affect a an absolute humidity change. That's really good, <laughs> as opposed to well, I'm going to get some dehumidification along with my cooling, and it's something like 
20% of my total. That's a very awkward way to think about dehumidification. <laughs> so when you are investigating a moisture problem in a building, all right, I've got a um, community college I work with a lot. I was down there yesterday. I was looking at my dew point. I'm running about 61 degrees uh, in the in this particular area where we had a little bit of an issue. Um, am I very alarmed? Am I somewhat alarmed? Am I? Uh, uh, do I only have part of the information that I need? Do I need to look in more places? Do I need to measure the dew point in more places? Let's let's talk a little bit about investigating using that dew point temperature to investigate moisture problems. Well, I'd I say that, that a 60 or a 61 or 62 degree dew point is uh, is a very typical uh, dew point for a building that's moderately air conditioned and not uh, and not frozen. Uh, so that that's a very common dew point. It's also not a dew point that I would expect would create large problems uh, unless that dew point uh, was being held at that level for a long time, and unless there was a cooling system that was creating cold surfaces below that dew point, which you know would not be very common, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be having cold lots of them. So if you had a sixty percent uh, sixty degree dew point, um, um, I wouldn't be especially concerned about that. Uh, so you know that would be that would be a well you know it's higher than then would allow a uh, margin for error. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 50, 55 degree dew point allows you uh, a margin for error. Why? Because that means that things are going to be really quite dry in a building. So they can absorb some moisture without without having enough moisture to, to have a mold, mold rotation. Okay. But, uh, it's not bad. If you had a 70 degree dew point, yeah, that's likely to be pretty risky. I mean, Air sea systems are going to create surfaces that are well below 70 Fahrenheit. <laughs> so therefore, there's going to be a bigger risk with compensation. But the bigger thing, Charles, is, uh, is, is how that behaves over time. And as an indirect quality investigators, we don't usually get the luxury of being able to see things over time. we got to go in there, see what's wrong, give them a report 20 minutes later, right? Right, right. <laughs> For no, for no money. <laughs> <laughs> not enough money, but either way. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and if it's a 15-page report, it's better than a two-page report. And AI just can't do it. You need time to see the behavior of the building over time. But the short answer to, to your question is, yeah, you need more information. You need to see behavior over time, and you need to know surface temperatures. So that's thermal camera or, uh, or infrared uh, surface temperature thermometers in the, in the suspect areas. Okay. And how many areas do I need to monitor my dew point in? I've got a, you know, 25,000 square foot building. It's a pretty good sized building. Would I expect it to change very much from one room to another? Uh, it can. It can be quite different uh, from one room to another, although 25,000 square foot isn't tiny. It's not huge either. Um, you know, depend on whether it's open or whether it's closed, or whether they're closed spaces or whether they're open. What the what the AC system is doing or what it isn't doing in different in different zones. So it, it can vary. It can vary quite a lot. The, the, you know, an air conditioned building. I don't know what the building is, and I don't know what the issues are, <laughs> and I don't know how widespread the issues are. You know, is it a question where there's mold everywhere, <laughs> or is it a question where there's a smell here someplace you know I don't, right right I don't know what the circumstances more so the second one in this case but i've had other cases where yeah it was everywhere and in that case we were closer to 65 uh, maybe a little more uh, dew point and yeah you know and it was pretty consistent these are just um you know they're, they're older buildings they're um 60s you know um Typical community college construction, double brick wall with a, a whole lot of air leakage, you know, and in in many uh, in several of the cases now, what we've done, and, and maybe I'm wrong, you know, we're talking investigating moisture. Well, you've got buildings that have um, high dew point throughout. I'm not going to get them to change the mechanical system. I can get them to maintain it better, to change the filters more often, to 
clean the coils to maybe clean some of the um some of the mechanical components like we had some reheats that were pretty badly plugged etc we got all that cleaned up but then you know i'm not going to be able to change the mechanical system without spending a ton of money so the other thing i focused on was making sure that we air sealed the building as much as possible so that we weren't pulling air in through the wrong places does that sound like a common sense approach it sounds like a terrific approach. Absolutely a terrific approach. One of the one of the things that uh, that can be done in existing buildings, and, and this uh, circles back a little bit to the to the uh, to the EPA guidance for new buildings, but it also applies for existing buildings. And there's actually a chapter in that guidance for existing buildings and maintenance and operations buildings. You said a couple different things there that that, that I could, you know tap into there and and maybe can be one's hideously expensive and then another one is really cheap. So the really cheap one is not going to get them to change the, the HVAC system, not going to get them to put into equipment at community college, no gosh money, of course not. Right. But one thing that is almost, that is true of almost all HVAC systems is a lack of control, a, a basically random amount of outdoor air coming in for ventilation. And this is partly a question of HVAC culture. It's also partly design culture and also HVAC designers' budgets. They don't usually put in monitors or controls on the outdoor air. There's a damper. Or maybe there isn't. Or if there's a damper, it might be frozen up, wide open, or shut. And so uh, to get them to, and yourself as an investigator, taking your flow of it around and figuring out what that ventilation air needs to be in terms of airflow for the rooftop units uh, and, for, and for other intakes and setting the flow to what it needs to be as opposed to what it is now. What that does is it hugely reduces the amount of, uh, of humidity that's coming into a building. It just hugely reduces it because usually it's grossly overventilated. And, you know, you can you can cut that humidity load tremendously and then the HVAC system that's there can do a much better job at taking the, the reduced amount of water out. Um, that's pretty cheap. And, and, and if you can't control it, if, uh, if there's no damper there, uh, dampers aren't that expensive. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. As, as a modification over time, you can't do it right away, but, it's something that can be done. The other thing that you said there about this, though, I wanted to tap into quickly. I'm going to shut up for a second. Let's talk. You, you talk as brick, much as you want. <laughs> you mentioned brick veneer, uh, and that has been a really problematic construction. That uh, again, uh, Terry made, made a really good point about this when he put this in the, in the EPA guide system. Behind brick veneer, you need to have a vapor barrier, not just a water barrier something like Tyvek or Type R something. You need a you need a vapor barrier behind brick veneer. You say inboard of the brick. Why? Because you, the brick absorbs moisture, the sun hits it, and then dries all that vapor at hugely increased vapor pressure differences into that cooler building. So if there's a pervasive smell everywhere I hope not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you don't have visible mold growth and maybe it could be in the walls behind the behind the brick because maybe there isn't a vapor barrier there. Maybe there's just an air barrier there. <laughs> well, and that would be common, right? We we have, and in many cases, there's not even a gap between the two brick walls, at least in some of this older construction. So you've got yeah. you know cinder block or glass block or something, and then you've got a brick veneer. How do you? Well, that, that, well, that, that, that's not bad. That's really good. The, the bad one is where you've got brick veneer and a mortar-filled cavity behind it because, you know, mortar slops down and fills that cavity. And then you got gypsum board. Yeah. <laughs> you can board of that. Instead of concrete block or glass block, that's the problematic construction. So if you don't have that, the risks go away. You know, a lot of risks go away. So how do we add that moisture barrier? Is it, do we paint? The interior walls, do we make sure there's no drywall on the exterior walls? You know, remove the drywall, put some kind of a... a there, there just are no 
easy, inexpensive ways to fix that problem. If that's the problem, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying it's the problem, but if it were the problem, I don't know of any low-cost way of doing that. You're either you're taking apart the wall either from the outside or from the inside. Either one is just monstrously expensive and very disruptive, uh, and and rebuilding it in a, in, a, in a more rational way. But one thing that you can do in that situation is to figure out, you know, is it really a problem? Is that is that the problem? I right. certainly hope it is. Uh, and then the way to find that out is moisture content measurements uh, or water activity measurements uh, of that gypsum board, if it is gypsum board, on that exterior wall. Find out if, if it's soggy. Find out if it's damp. <laughs> Let me ask another quick question, Lou. If I, you know, we've got these buildings that have a higher dew point, and they're bringing in outdoor air. Let's say we've we've cut down that amount of outdoor air. We've installed dampers, or we've fixed the existing dampers. In residential properties, I have, and I know um, others have installed dehumidifiers. You know, within the uh, air handling cabinet, basically to try and dehumidify some of the air coming back to the air handler. Have you ever done anything similar in a commercial building uh, where you've, you know, maybe used a couple of, you know, good uh, restoration type even dehumidifiers and and just try and dehumidify some of that air that, you know, you have to get some outdoor air? Absolutely. And uh, that that design, you know, where, where you are drying out the incoming ventilation air, is at the heart of, uh, of pretty much every book I've ever written. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the, the dehumidification handbook for industrial applications, it's been standard practice in, in, you know, where you have to have lower humidity levels in industrial applications, you know, below 40, below 40. So 30, 10, 5.5% relative humidity, you know, minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, dew points, one half of one grade per pound. You know, when you're doing that type of thing, you always, always nail the, uh, the the humidity load of that ventilation air first before it gets into into the rest of the system, and that's that's what Willis Carrier did in in 1914 in his first air conditioning project. Uh, same idea, and we kind of got away from that in the intervening years, but that's the thing to do. Actually, there's a project now in Ashray to uh, to develop a dedicated outdoor system design guide so that it's more obvious how to do that. Hmm. And the uh, there's actually an article in the in Refrigerating and Air Conditioning News, uh, the, the June 15th article about the DOAS, dedicated outdoor, D-O-A-S, dedicated outdoor air system, uh, pieces of equipment, rooftop equipment, they're being much more widely applied now in commercial buildings than, than they were in previous years. Yeah, absolutely. Dry the ventilation air. <laughs> all dry all the time. <laughs> all dry. Now, before we go to round up and bring in the the restoration industry global watchdog who we've got on the line here, and of course I've got Cliff, and I'm sorry, Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to get in real quick before round up? Uh, no, I'm good. Thanks. All right, let me get one more in, and then we'll go go to the roundup, Lou. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about investigating and avoiding moisture problems in buildings and and the presentation you're going to do at Healthy Buildings 2015 in Boulder. I want to give you a a chance because we're running low on time. I can't believe how fast this went. What key point would you want to make sure our listeners are aware of that can't make it to that presentation? What key point from that presentation do you feel they should hear? I just made it just made at that last point, which is that if you dry the ventilation air in a commercial building or in a home, then you're not going to have much in the way of humidity control problems. And if you don't dry the ventilation air in a home or in a commercial building, then you are at much higher risk of, uh, of, of humidity control problems. And that's <laughs> that's the main point. I mean, if, if there's no other takeaway uh, in terms of the, if you can't make it to healthy buildings uh, here in July in Boulder, uh, where there's a whole lot of other wonderful things to hear, then remember that point. Dry the ventilation air all the time, no matter what. <laughs> and I guess, 
control where that ventilation air is coming from is another key point. Mm-hmm. Because we're we're sucking air in from everywhere, I guess, in a lot of these buildings. Yep. What's the and biggest... And, and, and the point of that is clean the filters. <laughs> clean your filters. So, so, so that you can get the air through the system that's designed to take the water out instead of having to have clog filters and then it's got to suck in air through the building enclosure. <laughs> There you go. And that's so simple, you know, change filters on a regular basis. There's a lot of companies out there now that you can actually bring in to do that for your entire facility. And sometimes as you can't even do it as inexpensively as yourself as they do it because they have deals with filter manufacturers and make their own and all that. Sure. Yeah. Every every three months. And any outdoor air filter, new filter every three months at least. Every three months. At least every three months. Great point. All right, Lou, we're going to go to our roundup, and uh, we'll be right back with, we've got Lou Harriman. Great. I love talking to Lou. We've got the Z-Man. We're bringing on the Global Restoration Industry Watchdog. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in. Let him out, cut him out. Ride him in, raw All right, I think we're going to go right to Pete Consigli. Hey, Pete, we have you. Hey, Joe, how's it going? Very yeah, good. I, I called him a little bit late today because I was on another call, but I got in just just before the halftime, so I enjoyed listening to Lou talk for the for the part two of the show. I um I got a, I got a question for Lou, and then there's actually something a little announcement I kind of want to make. That, that kind of came in just a few minutes ago. I actually sent an email to you, Cliff, and Lou on this thing, which maybe the listeners may be interested in. But, Lou, my question for you is this. You know, you were really one of the, uh, you were the, the kind of the pioneer, if you would, several years ago that introduced the use of uh, these infrared cameras to the restoration industry. I mean, it, it had been around in the building community for a while, and there were a lot of misnomers on it and false readings and those kinds of things. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, obviously the price of those cameras were very expensive when they first came out. They're more reasonable now, and um, I think there's uh, courses and a lot of people have understand, a better understanding of it. So my question to you, just from the work that you do and, you know, your ASH rate uh, stuff, how, how commonplace uh, is the use of, of these cameras in the field on investigations, whether it's restoration stuff, indoor air quality investigations, and, um, you know, how common... Are they, and, and, and or should they be more? I mean, it, it, should it be just kind of standard procedure now? The guys doing investigations need to have that in their arsenal. So that, that's kind of my two-part question. Oh, sure, uh, Pete. I, I think that, um, you know, really the restoration industry has has been by far the, the most important leaders in expanding use of thermal cameras in buildings. I mean, if you're an architect or engineer, you really don't use those a heck of a lot. Uh, the, it's the restoration industry that, that's made that uh, a matter of standard practice in, uh, uh, in restoration. And it certainly is a matter of standard practice. And, and these days, because, gosh, these things are very inexpensive. I mean, you can get a, a FLIR one, the, the latest one is uh, $250. You know, it snaps onto your iPhone or to your Android. Uh, for 250 bucks, you can have a thermal camera that will show you really quickly where the suspect areas are, you know. That's probably not good enough for forensic investigation where you need lots more pixels. So you're talking several thousand dollars for a camera, but for 250 bucks, I don't see a good reason why you know a lawn damage restoration supervisor wouldn't have one of those. Uh, it's cheap and it's easy and it's great and it makes for a better job. It's a very compelling marketing tool too to show homeowners and insurance people why you gotta you gotta drive over here even though you don't think you do. <laughs> Right. Or we've got to look here because we've got a cold surface. We've got to at least cut a hole and figure out what's back there. And that could be causing your odor well, that you uh, get. Yeah, that was, that was kind of my feeling, Lou. I, I think that, you know, when they first came out, they, you know, the, the good color ones were like 15 grand. So obviously that was a little bit of a deterrent. But now you're right with the price range and it's out there. But one of, the, one of my concerns still is, is that uh, when these things get integrated in as part of the toolbox, that um, people still don't always necessarily get the proper training, and sometimes you get false readings and things of that nature. And uh, 
I'd always would be a little concerned with that, but I, I think the industry is trying to uh, step up in that regard. But when the price comes down and it's just more ubiquitous, um, you know, it, uh, I guess those are some of the issues that you have to grapple with. So, but anyway, you've been uh, you've been a real a really big help uh, over the years with all the training that you've provided and the information you've done at a lot of the REA programs and of course with the water loss specialist to uh, to give insights not just on the camera but in the use of this instrumentation in general to uh, how to interpret it properly and how to you know how to use it and and, uh, and give accurate information. So anyway, thanks for that. Hey Joe, I um something I, I'd like to you know while I was on the call. Layla Thomas called me, and I, so I temporarily took the call because she hardly ever calls. And anyone who comes to summer camp knows Layla. She's she's part of the, uh, the Texan crew, and but uh, in her day job, she uh, she's a Resnet Quality Assurance uh, designee person. She works with Masco Building Products, and apparently there's a couple of free seminars that are going on. Although you got to register and fill up in Florida, that have to do with the codes, and particularly for. Orlando and Miami builders, anyone involved in that. One of them is on June 30th in Orlando and, and July 31st uh, in Miami. And top build and troop team is going to have Joe Seabrook down there uh, delving into the new mechanical ventilation and, and uh, building envelope requirements. So uh, I emailed it. She sent me a little email with a little tag on it, Joe, and I, I said I'd, I'd, I'd give it to, the, to your listeners and maybe um, – there's some details in there that uh, Cliff might be able to put in the blog that goes out. They're, you know, looking to get the word out to the locals down here. I suppose anybody can come, but um, I thought that'd be kind of useful and kind of dovetails off of some of the stuff that Lou was talking about. So uh, I told her I'd, I'd kind of give a shout-out uh, for on that. And um, if anybody wants her information, her email is Thomas at masco.com. Layla like the song Derek and the Dominoes. Doc Thomas with an H T H O M A S at Masco M A S T O dot com. So anyway, figured I'd get that plug in there because um, I thought it'd be very useful and it was awful timely that it kind of came in. And of course, most of uh, just about every well, actually everyone on the call right now, the four of us, and maybe a good chunk of your listeners will all be seeing each other the first week of August in Westford for the annual Building Science Symposium and Summer Camp. So anyway, great uh, great show. I always enjoyed listening to little shares insights and uh good job guys well thank you pete and thanks for joining us uh cliff any final questions for lou no just uh thanks for joining us lou and are you going to summer camp oh yeah i i, I would never miss summer camp <laughs> okay well we'll see you there we'll see you there lou. i've got one more for you lou um we were talking about you know pete brought up a great topic with the thermal imaging cameras we talked a little bit about uh some other equipment actually that was before the show so we might want to bring that up some of the new uh sensing equipment that's available out there that you can do some more long-term type uh investigations for temperature relative humidity what other is there any other new equipment on the horizon or any um new inspection type gadgets that you might want to mention um, well, there's a bunch of tools. I mean, I'm a, I'm a gizmo guy. We need another couple hours on that one. <laughs> but, uh, but I think the, the most exciting one, and I'm, I'm very excited about it, is, is the, the matter of water activity sensors. And uh, the folks at uh, Decacon Devices are wrestling with how to design a uh, water activity sensor so that it's practical for for water damaged people, uh, and also for building investigators, and I'm optimistic that they that they've got some cool things coming along uh, that they haven't been able to tell me about yet. You know, because it's secret; they're just in development. <laughs> okay. So, but the idea of water activity, you know, the, the biological availability of moisture uh, in in any material, and being able to measure that, record it in a practical way, that's going to be a big part of. Uh, of, of being sure that the building is dry enough to uh, to avoid the potential for mold growth or bacterial growth. That's that's cool. Well, <laughs> if we, we get those sensors, I'm gonna be a very happy guy. I'm <laughs> glad I asked. We had a, we did a show with um, the guys from Decagon. If you just go to our website and go to the search box and put in water activity, I'm sure it will be one of the first two shows that come up. Uh, it was a nice, cool. it was a very interesting show. Yeah, and I, I was wondering if uh, you were still doing anything with that. I'm glad to hear you are. I'm glad to hear you think that's uh, something that 
will be useful as time goes on. Right now it's kind of in the um, experimental stages, but uh, it, Cliff and I were both intrigued by that one. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hey, Lou, as always, thank you so much for, for joining us and for you know helping spread your knowledge to our listeners. It's always a, a wonder to have you. know We love having you. Um, you sent me that great book, the Home Performance book. I recommend people grab that one. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again here real soon. In August, uh, if not sooner, I'm trying to get out to healthy buildings, but that one's a, a stretch for me at the moment. But um, it's going to be such a great conference. I'm trying everything I can to make it out there. So I'll hope I, hopefully I'll run into you out there. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity to talk. Appreciate Always a pleasure, Lou. And uh, enjoy the meetings down there over the next couple of days. I know you're down at Ashray and uh, getting ready for the conference. Their summer conference is coming up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I believe. And that's exactly right. So it's not too late. If you're in the area, go down and check out the Ashray Summer Conference. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you so much to this week's guest, Lou Harriman, uh, Mason Grant Consulting up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Always a pleasure to have Lou with us. I also want to thank the Z-Man, my co-host, Cliff. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thanks, John, for the great program. Comment on the on the chat box. Of course, to John, you got to have faith. No glitches today. You've been on a roll, buddy. We haven't had any glitches in a couple of months. And uh, to Pete, the watchdog consigli. Pete, thanks as always for joining us. And uh, next week, the Z-Man and I are going to take a day off. It's the uh, 4th of July holiday weekend. We're going to take the day off, and then we'll be back on July 10th, I think that would be, or July 9th, somewhere in that range, with the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 